you have a Bible, please open to John chapter 4 as we continue our study in John's Gospel. If you don't have a Bible, it should be up on the screen. And um, there are printed messages on uh, both, at both exits. You can pick those up either now or later if you'd like. There, are, there should be an outline in your bulletin. You can follow with the message as well. And uh, all 21 years' worth of messages are on the church web, and um, they're now being posted also on Bible.org. If you want to go to that website, you can uh, read or listen to them as well. Uh, We are in John 4, starting at verse 43. After the two days, that is the two days that Jesus has just spent in Samaria... He went forth from there into Galilee, which would be to the north. For Jesus himself testified that a prophet has no honor in his own country. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans received him, having seen all the things that he did in Jerusalem at the feast. For they themselves also went to the feast. Therefore, he came again to Cana of Galilee, where he had made the water wine. And there was a royal official whose son was sick at Capernaum. When he heard (coughs) that Jesus had come out of Judea into Galilee, he went to him and was imploring him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. So Jesus said to him, Unless you people see signs and wonders, you simply will not believe. The royal official said to him, Sir, Come down before my child dies. Jesus said to him, Go, your son lives. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and started off. As he was now going down, his slaves met him, saying that his son was living. So he inquired of them the hour when he began to get better. Then they said to him, Yesterday, at the seventh hour, the fever left him. So the father knew that it was at that hour in which Jesus said to him, Your son lives. And he himself believed, and his whole household. This is again a second sign that Jesus performed when he had come out of Judea into Galilee. We've all heard stories of uh, men who have had what are called foxhole conversions. The uh, man was on the front lines in the line of fire. Bullets were flying around him. Uh, Mortars were exploding all around. And uh, he fears for his life that he's going to die. And then suddenly his partner right next to him is struck and drops dead. And in a panic he He flashes back to his Sunday school upbringing and he thinks about his godly mother who's praying for him and he cries out, God, get me out of here and I will follow you all the days of my life. And God graciously answers that prayer and gets him out of there safely. The real test, of course, of that man's faith is not the sincerity of that prayer from the foxhole, but rather... Does he follow Christ after the pressure is off? Will he really submit his life to Jesus as Lord and Savior? Uh, Will he trust him and follow him 
and obey him uh, all the other days after the crisis is over. And even for those of us who have never been in that kind of life and death situation, we've all experienced crises of some sort. Maybe like the man in the story, you've had a very, very sick child and you cried out to God. Uh, maybe it was a job crisis. You needed work and uh, the, the family needed your support. Um, maybe you were lonely and you were praying desperately for a mate. We could multiply the, the crises on and on. We've all had them and hopefully we've all called out to the Lord in our time of crisis. And that's fine. And the Lord many times graciously answers us. But the Lord doesn't want us to use Him like Aladdin's lamp on the shelf where we get Him off the shelf and rub Him the right way when we're in the crisis and then say, well, thanks, that's over. Put Him back on the shelf and virtually forget about Him until the next crisis. But rather, the Lord wants us to go deeper in faith and really to come to know Him for who He is, to trust in Him for who He is, and not just to use Him as uh, uh, an emergency escape from whatever crisis we're in. And I believe that's the point of this story that we read here at the end of John chapter 4, where Jesus heals the son of this royal official, a boy who is near death. And the lesson for us is that the Lord wants you and me to move from what we might call foxhole faith, that kind of help Lord, I'm in a crisis faith that solves your crisis, and to move on to the mature saving faith of eternal life. As I say, the Lord often is gracious. He meets us in those crises, but that's just the beginning that's just the beginning. The Lord wants us to believe in Him as Lord and Savior, to follow Him all of our lives because of who He is. Now, we need to understand some background before we get into the story, and John provides that for us in verses 43 uh, through 45. And the point of the background information is to show us that it's possible to receive Jesus without truly believing in Him. Let me explain. Uh, these verses provide, again, the background. Um, after two days, as I said, means after the two days that he spent in Samaria. Uh, there he encountered what we might not expect, a very warm reception. The Samaritan people came to believe in Jesus, as they told the woman, not just because of what you said, but now we have heard him ourselves, and we believe that he is the Savior of the world. And so uh, they believe in Jesus, and then Jesus goes forth from there into Galilee. And then John adds in verse 44, For Jesus himself testified that a prophet has no honor in his own country. That's a statement that is repeated in the other Gospels with regard to Jesus being rejected in Nazareth, where he was uh, reared. But here, John doesn't mention Nazareth, simply the whole region there of Galilee. Um, and uh, you want to ask the question, though, why does he introduce the verse with the word for? If your translation doesn't have it, it's not a 
literal translation because verse 44 begins with, For Jesus himself testified. And so verse 44 should be explaining verse 43, but you've got to scratch your head to figure it out. How does it explain that? Maybe the sense is that after his unexpectedly warm reception in uh, Samaria, Jesus went into Galilee to demonstrate what John has already told us in John 1.11, that he came unto his own and his own did not receive him. In other words, John is showing this proves what I said at the outset of this gospel. Leon Morris explains it this way. He had come unto his own, not under a delusion that he would be welcomed, but knowing full well that he must expect a rejection. This would not take him by surprise, for it was in the divine plan. So to fulfill all this implies, he went to Galilee. And so John wants us to understand by verse 44 that Jesus was following God's plan. He was subject to the will of God, and of course that will of God moves him toward the cross. Next time in chapter 5, we'll see a turning point as the initial reception of Christ that we've seen in chapters 2 through 4 shift, and there is mounting rejection of Jesus Christ. Um, So, if verse 44 then means that he's not going to be received in Galilee, then you've got to explain verse 45. Why does verse 45 uh, say, So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans received him, having seen all the things that he did in Jerusalem at the feast, for they themselves also went to the feast. I mean, you would expect him to say, A prophet is not without honor in his own country, so when he came to Galilee, uh, the Galileans rejected him. But he says the opposite. They received him. So you have to say, why does he say that? I think there are two clues to interpret verse 45. The first clue is the phrase, having seen all the things that he did in Jerusalem at the feast. That takes us back, if you've been with us in this study, to chapter 2. And you'll remember that in chapter 2, verses 23 to 25, Jesus went up to the feast, and it says that many of the Jews there were believing in him, but it was a superficial belief. They were believing in him because they saw the signs that he did, but then John says, but Jesus on his part was not entrusting himself to them, for he knew what was in man. He knew what was in their hearts. And so here... Again, it's the same thing. Uh, John followed up that story in chapter 2, by the way, with the story of Nicodemus. And you'll remember Nicodemus came by night and he said to Jesus, "Uh, we know you're a prophet sent from God because nobody can do the signs that you're doing unless God is with him. He was impressed by the signs. And Jesus then showed Nicodemus what he himself did not see, and that is you need to be born again. Because even though you think you're a good man, you need the new birth. So in the same way here, you have this kind of superficial faith. The second clue in understanding verse 45 is Jesus' rebuke in verse 48, where he says, unless you people see signs and wonders, you simply will not believe. 
And you is plural, and that's why the New American Standard translation puts in people to show you it's a plural you. Jesus was not just rebuking the man who's asking for healing for his son. He's rebuking all of the Galileans who were there listening to this dialogue um, because they are seeking Jesus for superficial reasons. They're enamored by the signs, by the miracles, but uh, they don't understand. They should seek Jesus because he is the true Messiah. He is the Lord. So, in verse 45, when John says the Galileans received him, he's using irony. In other words, it's kind of a tongue-in-cheek, well, they received him, put that in quotes. They received him, but they didn't really believe in him. And so neither they nor this royal official recognize and honor Jesus as the Savior of the world. You'll remember that's what the Samaritans came to. They said, now, we know. And they didn't have a miracle, a sign to bring them to that faith. All they had was the word of Jesus. And that word of Jesus led them to believe in him as Savior and Lord. But here, the Galileans just seek him for a sign. And so John is saying to us, we should go beyond this shallow Galilean faith, put that faith in quotes, the faith that this official comes to Jesus with, and we should grow in faith, as this official will do, we'll see, to the place where we truly believe in Jesus, not for what he does for us in the crisis, but for who he is, that he is the true Savior and Lord from heaven, the Christ, the Son of God, so that believing we might have life in his name. Now, <clears throat> That um, background then brings us to the story itself in um, verses 46 to 54. And the background is illustrating the point that the story makes. This royal official comes to Jesus, in effect, with Galilean faith. Hey, I need a miracle. Quick, get him off the shelf. Have him do your miracle. Jesus graciously consents and does the miracle. But the point is... You need to go deeper. And we'll see, this official does. He goes deeper, and he and his whole household finally believe. Now, you'll notice one other thing here in the story, and that is there is a marked emphasis on life. In uh, verse 50, Jesus tells the man, Go, your son lives. He doesn't say your son is healed. He says your son lives. In verse 51, the man is going home, his slaves meet him, and they say, not your son was healed, but they say, your son is living. And then in verse 53, uh, the father comes to know that the son was healed at the very hour that Jesus spoke the command. And, uh, and he said, uh, it was the very hour in which Jesus had said, your son lives. And so three times it repeats that. And why does it do that? Well, because John wrote his gospel for a very definite purpose. He tells us that purpose in chapter 20 and verse 31. He says, I've written these signs, these miracles, so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, notice, and that believing you might have life in his name. So you see the connection. 
This miracle, John isn't just telling you a nice story. He's writing this miracle so that you might believe like this official did and might have life, not just physical life like the boy, but he is a picture of spiritual life in Jesus' name. So let's look first at foxhole faith, which is in verses 46 to 49. And it shows us the lesson that often we don't cry out to the Lord until we're desperate, like this man was. John notes in verse 46 that Jesus came again to Cana of Galilee, and then he makes the point where he had made the water wine. And then you'll notice in the last verse, 54, he ties it back into that same miracle and says, this is now a second sign uh, that Jesus performed when he'd come out of Judea into Galilee. So why is John tying this back into the first miracle? Well, A.W. Pink suggests that John wants us to draw some comparisons. And if I had more time, I would give you all seven of the comparisons that Pink makes between that first miracle and this one. You can look it up online or you can take a stab at it yourself later. Um, But the most significant comparison, I think, is this. When Jesus performed the first miracle, the, the turning the water into wine, we read that his disciples came to believe in him. And you scratch your head and say, wait a minute. They had already believed in him or they wouldn't be his disciples. Yes, they came to believe in him because belief is not just a static thing at one level. They came to believe in him in a deeper way. Same thing here. This official believes in Jesus when he departs on Jesus' word to go home. But then we read later, he and his whole household believed in him. How is that? Well, they came to a deeper level of faith. And that's John's point for you and me. Wherever we're at, there's deeper faith. There's more levels of faith in Jesus that we can go to as we come to understand who he is, that he is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing in him, we might have life in his name. Also, though, as James Boyce points out, there's a contrast between that first and second miracle. It's pretty dramatic. The first miracle is all about joy and gladness. It's a wedding celebration, and everybody's happy, and everybody's having a great time. But in the second miracle, there's sickness and desperation and anxiety and the shadow of death. And Boyce says, by comparing these two scenes, we can see that Jesus is the Lord of our joys and Jesus is the Lord of our sorrows. And we can trust Him and should trust Him in all of the ups and downs of life. Now, John describes this man as a royal official. We don't know whether he was a Jew or a Gentile, but he was held some position of significance in Herod's court. Um, some say he could have been Menean. We read about Menean in Acts 13.1. He was one of the early leaders in the church in Antioch, and it says that he was raised with Herod the Tetrarch. Could have been him. Or it could have been a man named Chusa, who was Herod's steward. That means probably his treasurer or financial manager. And uh, in Luke 8.3, we read that Chusa's wife, Joanna, was contributing to Jesus' support out of her personal means. 
Could have been him. Uh, We don't know. John doesn't tell us. One thing we can know, though, is this. Herod the Great was not, I mean, Herod uh, the, uh, not Herod the Great, Herod Antipas, he was not lacking for a witness, was he? We know that John the Baptist testified to Herod and preached to him. He lopped off his head. I am sure that uh, this official, when this miracle happened, told Herod about what Jesus had done. And yet at the end of the Gospels, when Pilate sends Jesus over to Herod, in Luke we read about that, Herod and his soldiers just mock him and send him back to Pilate for crucifixion. So Herod certainly uh, had good witness, but he refused to believe. But this official had probably heard of this first miracle of Jesus in Cana. He heard about what Jesus had done down in Jerusalem. But here's the the kicker. He would never have come to Jesus had it not been for this crisis. It's often in a crisis that the Lord gets our attention, isn't it? We're going on happy about life. Hey, no problems, no needs. Everything's fine. Wham! The crisis hits. And what do we do? I would guess that, first of all, he had sought all the physicians in Capernaum. He was a man of means, but that didn't seem to help. And so, in desperation, he makes this 15 to 20 mile walk, probably, from Galilee. The Sea of Capernaum was on the Sea of Galilee, which is about 700 feet below sea level, up into the hills of Capernaum to seek out Jesus. And the verb tense here is that he was repeatedly imploring him to come down and heal his son. And if you're a parent, you know exactly what that's like to be up at 2 a.m. with a feverish child. And in his case, there was no emergency room to take him to. And you're praying out, oh God, what should I do? Help me. I, I want my child to live. That's the scene. But God often does that with us, doesn't he? Now, it's not automatic that you seek God. I have encountered people who got in a crisis and they shake their fist in God's face and say, how dare him treat me like this? You know, after all I've done for him, rah, 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 and they're ranting against God. That's a bad way to respond. The way to respond in a crisis is to humble yourself and say, oh God, I desperately need you right now. I desperately need you. And that's what this father is doing. His money didn't help. And that's significant. We tend to think money will solve everything. You know, I've often thought of poor Jacqueline Kennedy Onassis, one of the richest women in the world, gets cancer, and all of her money did not prolong her life. Doesn't help. Youth doesn't help. You say, well, I'm young, I'm healthy. Yeah, so was this little boy before he got sick. Children die. It's the hardest thing to do as a pastor is to bury a child. But it happens, doesn't it? And the point is this. Today is the day of salvation, not tomorrow. And if you're here without Christ, don't put it off saying, Oh, I'm young, I'm healthy, I'm good, man. You know, maybe someday when I get in a crisis. No, right now you're in a crisis because you're a heartbeat away from eternity. 
And right now you should seek the Lord and say, Oh God, be merciful to me, the sinner. Jesus seems like he replies harshly to this man, doesn't he, at first? I mean, verse 48, Unless you people see signs and wonders, you simply will not believe. Ah! You know, seems like a stinging reply to a man in this need, but we need to trust Jesus always answers graciously, even when it stings. He knew that this man was not seeking him for salvation. The man wasn't coming saying, Oh God, oh Jesus, I am a sinner and I need your forgiveness and I want to bow before you as the Magi did and worship you as Lord and Savior. That wasn't why he was coming. He was coming saying, in effect, Hey Jesus, I got this problem and could you get me out of this jam? Thanks. And then I won't bug you again. See, he was coming for the wrong reason. And so what sounds like a, and was a rebuke was really a gracious rebuke because Jesus was pointing him to his greater need. His need was to believe in Jesus as Savior and Lord. And that's your greater need if you're in a crisis right now and don't have him as your Savior and Lord. You don't just need him to get you out of the jam. You need him, period, always. And he wants you to see that. And so whenever the Lord rebukes us, it's never to hurt us. It's always for our good. Also, notice that this man's faith was somewhat limited. He had in his mind, Jesus has to physically come with me down to Capernaum, maybe lay hands on my son in order to heal him. That was his scenario. Come, Jesus, come with me. And it it never occurred to him that Jesus could heal at a distance. Nor did it ever occur to him that even if his son died, Jesus could raise him from the dead. He did that with Jairus' daughter. Um, But at least his faith was sincere. And I say that because he doesn't come boasting in himself. He doesn't come and say, Jesus, if you knew who I am, you'd meet my request. I'm a hotshot in in, uh, Herod's uh, court. And I'm worthy for you to do this. He doesn't do that. He just pathetically cries out, Sir, come down before my child dies. He doesn't take offense at Jesus' rebuke. He comes with this request. Now, before we leave this point, I think that all of us, myself included, who have believed in Jesus as Savior and Lord, still need to look in the mirror. Because, if we're honest, often we treat the Lord like this man was treating Jesus. We don't pray unless we're in a crisis. You know, we kind of keep Jesus on the shelf. It's good to have him there for an emergency. Kind of like Aladdin's lamp. And then we get in a crisis and we try to rub him the right way and get him to work for us. And then, frankly, he goes back on the shelf and we get on about our lives and sort of forget about him, but he wants us to worship him all the time as Lord. He wants us to fellowship with him every day, even when we're not in a crisis, to depend on him. He wants us to go deeper in our faith. It's kind of, I think some of you who are dads can relate to this one. What if your, and you say this is not hypothetical, uh, but what if your teenage son only came to you when he needed something? 
You know, hey, Dad, my allowance is a little shy this week. I could use a handout. Hey, Dad, can I have the keys to the car? You know, well, that's better than no contact, but frankly, you would appreciate maybe if he would just like to hang out with you because you're his dad and he likes you and he enjoys fellowshipping with you and he's not coming for anything that he needs. He's just coming because he likes you. Well, we're to do that with the Lord. We love him because he loves us, because he's our Lord. Now, the story then moves from this crisis foxhole faith to the next level. And that is initial faith in Christ's promise. And here the lesson is that when we cry out to him in our desperate need, we either have to take him at his word or not. Now, as I say, this guy has this scenario in his mind. Jesus has to come with me. And uh, when we get there, he'll go in, he'll pray on, over my son, and my son will be healed. That's how it's going to work. And so he's got this preconceived idea. Have you ever done that with the Lord? You know, you tell him how he's got to work. Well, he does that. Uh, Jesus could have gone with him. Jesus went with Jairus and uh, raised his daughter from the dead. But instead... Jesus puts this man in this curious dilemma. The man says, come, and notice what Jesus says, go. Your son lives. Go. Oh boy, now what? Either the man has to doubt the very one in whom he has put all of his hopes for his son's recovery and go, or, I mean, and and not go, or he has to believe him and go. And uh, so Jesus very skillfully draws him from his crisis faith, his foxhole faith, to this next level of faith in the word, the promise of Christ. Your son lives. Go. And he has nothing but Jesus' word to go on. Jesus isn't performing miracles, you know, and saying, yeah, I'll do one like this for you. He just tells him, go. And it's much like the Samaritans. We... Jesus didn't do any miracles there in Samaria, except for telling the woman everything about her past, but he didn't perform any visible miracles, and the Samaritans believed his word. That's what Jesus brings this man to here. And so John reports in verse 50, the man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and started off. So notice the Lord healed the man's desire Heal my son, but not his expectation. Heal my son by coming with me. And um, so the man had to set aside his expectation and now trust Jesus, taking him at his word. It reminds me of that wonderful story in the Old Testament about Naaman. You maybe learned about him in Sunday school. He was a Syrian general. Isn't it interesting how Syria and Israel are in the news this very hour? And... uh, Several, several millennia ago, Syria and uh, Israel were in the news. But anyway, the Syrian general has leprosy, probably not what we know today as Hansen's disease, but some serious skin disorder that made everyone stay away from him. And so he was an outcast, and it was pretty desperate. He'd tried everything, nothing worked, and he had a little servant girl who was Jewish. She was a Jewish slave girl had been taken by the Syrians in a raid, 
And she dared to mention, you know, I know a man in Israel who can heal you. His name is Elisha, the prophet. Well, he's desperate, so he puts together a very handsome reward, and he gets his retinue together, and he goes down to Elisha's house. Now, he's got a scenario in his mind. He pictures that Elisha is going to come out of the house, very, you know, impressive prophet. He's going to stand and call on the name of the Lord. He's going to wave his hand over uh, Naaman and say, You are healed, and presto, he'll be healed. And he gets to Elisha's house, and of all things, Elisha doesn't even come outside to meet him. He sends his servant out and says, Go out and tell Naaman to go dip in the Jordan River seven times, and he'll be healed. And Naaman is furious. I mean, what a social affront to this important general that this prophet doesn't even come outside and say, glad to meet you, I'll pray for you, or anything. He just says, go and dip in the Jordan River, and Naaman goes off in a rage. Well, after a few miles, and he's calmed down a bit, his servants approach him, and they say this to him, Second Kings 5.13, My father, had the prophet told you to do some great thing, would you not have done it? How much more then, when he says to you, wash and be clean. Isn't that a great picture of the gospel? You know, well, I want to do some great thing. No, just believe in Jesus and you'll be clean. And so Naaman goes to the Jordan River. I mean, he thought, you know, we got better rivers than that in Syria. But no, he goes to the Jordan River. He submits to the word of the prophet. He dips six times, nothing. Seventh time, total healing. J.C. Ryle points out here, he says, Christ's word is as good as his presence. And here's how he describes it. He says, what Christ has said, he is able to do. And what he has undertaken, he will never fail to make good. The sinner who has really reposed his soul on the word of the Lord Jesus is safe to all eternity. In the things of this world, we say that seeing is believing but in the things of the gospel, believing is seeing, is as good as seeing. And so this royal official now believes Christ's word that his son is healed. He demonstrates his faith by starting home, and then that leads to the third level of faith that we encounter in verses 51 through 54. And that, I believe, we could describe as saving faith. When we come to understand who Jesus is, then we trust him apart from solving our own crisis. Probably what happened was this official had to spend the night somewhere on the way home. He couldn't make it all the way home the first night. And so on the second day, he's coming down toward Capernaum, and his servants meet him on the path. And they give him this joyous news, your son lives. And I'm sure he was overjoyed, but he wanted to make sure that this wasn't just a nice coincidence. You know, well, he got over the fever. Everyone gets over a fever almost at some point. So, nice coincidence. No, he asked them the question, when did he begin to get well? And they say, in effect, he didn't begin to get well. At the seventh hour, the fever abandoned him. The word left there in that verse, when they say the fever left him, 
is the same word we saw in John 4 when the woman left her water pot and went back in the village. She abandoned it. She just left it there and went. And the point is, this wasn't a gradual healing. This was a miracle. It happened instantly when Jesus spoke the word. And so now the man uh, progresses to what Spurgeon calls the full assurance of faith. His faith has grown from that foxhole faith, Jesus, get me out of this jam, to the faith in Christ's word, okay, I guess I can trust what he says, to now to this full assurance of faith where he and his whole household believe. They realize Jesus is no ordinary prophet. Jesus is the Christ. Jesus is the Son of God who can speak the word and at a distance Disease obeys his word and flees. He's God in human flesh. Now, John Calvin raises a very practical point in his commentary at this point. He says, yeah, this is all nice, but what about when you cry in a crisis and God doesn't answer immediately? You've probably had that experience. I have. And Calvin very practically acknowledges God doesn't usually instantly answer our requests as he did with this, uh, this royal official. And Calvin applies this by saying that while we wait, he says we should consider how much of concealed distrust there is in us, or at least how small and limited our faith is. When I read that, I said, ouch. <laughs> I resemble that remark because often when the Lord does not answer my request in my timing, or in my way, I start to doubt. Have you been there? Yeah. Start to doubt. I mean, I've got some requests for salvation of family members that are going on 40 years now. The Lord hasn't answered. See, and that's where you need to really say, you know what? He is the Lord, and I trust Him for who He is. Not... He doesn't have to work in my time and way. The Bible promises He will work all things together for good to those who love Him who are the called according to His purpose. And I may not even live to see it. But I have to trust Him at that point. Now let me just wrap this up with two practical other applications. The first one is this. If, if you've believed in Christ yourself, then entreat him for the salvation of your entire household. The man and his whole household believed. And again, it doesn't always happen instantly like this. But in the book of Acts, we see a number of cases where a man believes, like the centurion, uh, I mean the jailer in Philippi, and his whole household believes. And if you're the only Christian in your family, boy, go before the Lord all the time and just say, Lord, you were gracious to me. And now would you be gracious to my family and bring them to saving faith as well. And, of course, if you live with your family, you've got to live it. They've got to see the gospel in your life has made a big difference in the way you live, the way you think, the way you treat them. They have to see the love of Christ in you. 
The second application is there are some of you here perhaps who have never believed in Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord. And I want to be very honest with you. The picture of this little dying boy is a picture of you. You're on the verge of eternal death. The Bible calls it the second death. To die without Christ is to come under the eternal judgment of God, and that's a horrible thing. But the good news is this. If you'll call on the name of the Lord, you'll be saved. We saw that in Romans 10.13, remember? Whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And Christ died for sinners. We, We sang that. The rescue of sinners. The ransom from heaven. And Jesus is talking to you right now saying, come unto me. Come unto me. I'll forgive your sins. I'll give you eternal life as my free gift. And so, you need to see you can't do anything to save yourself, but Jesus can do everything to save you. And just as He spoke the Word and this boy was instantly healed, He can speak the Word this very minute and you will have eternal life instantly before you walk out the door if you will simply believe in Jesus. And so, again, let me remind you, this sign, this story in the Gospel, which is a true story, of Jesus healing this um, royal official's son, this sign was written, John 20, 31, so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you this day might have life in his name. Let's pray. Dear Father, we come.